Good evening, everybody. Um, good evening. Uh, welcome to uh, the London School of Economics for our debate on the future of Iraq. I'm very pleased that so many of you chose uh, to come here tonight, as opposed to the delights of the one summer day you're going to get in England uh, this, this season, I'm afraid. Um, my name's Charlie Beckett. I'm the director of POLIS, which is the forum for debate and research into journalism and society. Uh, we're based here at the London School of Economics and the London College of Communication. Uh, we're deeply interested in the role of the media in shaping uh, the world around us, and that's why we're especially delighted to be hosting this debate tonight. The Channel 4 Iraq Commission was an extraordinary piece of program making. With the support of the Foreign Policy Centre, it formed a high-level inquiry into the future of Iraq. Over a series of programs, it held hearings from expert witnesses, from Iraqis, from Americans, from Brits, diplomats, journalists, experts. And it then published a policy plan, which uh, the copies of outside, of uh, a possible future for Iraq. It was a, the whole process was a testimony to the commitment of Channel 4 to both quality journalism and public debate about the big issues, the difficult issues, uh, on screen and online. And this is an opportunity for us to take part in that debate and, if you like, bring it into uh, the real world. Uh, there's, no, there's been no bigger story for the media over the last five years than Iraq. And the media, like the politicians, hasn't always got it right. The debate about the future of Iraq... I believe, must also include how that story is told. The story of Iraq has major consequences, obviously, for Iraqis and for the region, but it's also, <laughs> but it's also at the heart... Okay, come on, kill it, Damien. It's, the, the story of Iraq has major consequences for the region, but it's also at the heart of a whole range of issues about international relations and about the humanitarian consequences and about international public security and terror. That's why we're debating it tonight. And I'm very, very grateful to Channel 4 and the Foreign Policy Centre for supporting this event. Now, the more eagle-eyed of you may have spotted that our panel members have changed. Um, that's partly because of breaking news in Britain and partly because of breaking news in Baghdad. So we've had to rearrange some of our speakers, and I'm really delighted that the people who joined us late could do so. I'm particularly delighted to welcome a former colleague of mine from Channel 4 News, Cathy Newman, who's the political correspondent for Channel 4 News, who's agreed to chair tonight's event. And so I'll hand over now to Cathy Newman. Thanks. Thank you, Charlie. Well, my apologies first to those who are expecting Jon Snow here tonight. He's in his waders in Gloucestershire, um, so I've stepped into his somewhat drier shoes uh, to chair a very distinguished panel. Uh, Baroness Jay on my right here is co-chair of the Iraq Commission, Anna's daughter of uh, Jim Callahan. She was born into the old Labour establishment but played a starring role in the new Labour narrative. As leader of the Lords, she helped abolish most of the hereditary peers and she was also a health minister and founding director of the National AIDS Trust. Uh, Mary Calder on the end there is professor and director of the Centre for the Study of Global Government, Governance at the LSE. She spent time in Iraq and was a member of an international commission on the Kosovo crisis. Uh, she's a prolific author, particularly on war and war matters. In the year of the Iraq War, I think I'm right in saying you published uh, 
the Global Civil Society and Answer to War, so I'm hoping that you can provide us with some answers tonight. Uh, Damien McElroy here is, uh, originally I'm told he wanted to be a farmer, but uh, ended up with a rather more glamorous job of a foreign affairs correspondent. He's lived in Beijing, Hong Kong, and Shanghai, and has travelled on assignment to more than 40 countries around the world. I think I'm right in saying his toughest destination has probably been Iraq. He was there most recently last month, so he can report to us on that. Tim Finch on the end, uh, last but not least, is Director of Communications at the Refugee Council. He works with Iraqi refugees in the UK, um, but spent most of his career at the BBC, latterly in the Westminster unit. He started in local radio, where apparently he took tea with Barbara Cartland. Um, His current job is a little less cushy, I think. Uh, This year he's been sleeping out with homeless refugees to raise awareness of their plight. So first of all, let's kick off with Baroness Jay. Um, The Commission says that there are no easy options left in Iraq, only painful ones. Can you highlight some of those options? Yes, I mean, I think we came to this conclusion, and it was a very interesting exercise, and I'd like to add my thanks mainly to the Foreign Policy Centre, who was so good at briefing all of us who took part in these hearings, and Channel 4, of course, for their amazing production, which enabled most of the hearings that we had to go out late at night on television and then to orchestrate a big programme, which we did uh, the weekend before last. There were three co-chairs, myself, Paddy Ashton, and Tom King, who was the Foreign Secretary in the major government at the time of the first Iraq war. And we were really divided up the responsibility for taking evidence amongst ourselves. There were eight other commissioners as well, so it was a very broadly based group. And I think the interesting thing is that we probably all came from very different positions, particularly on whether or not we agreed with the initial decision to go into the war in 2003. I, for one, was uh, very firmly opposed to that decision and have remained so, and my opposition to that has been confirmed by everything that's happened since. But the agreement was that we would not look at what happened in 2003. We would try to look forward and talk about what it was that the UK particularly and Gordon Brown's administration specifically could look at in terms of any positive contribution which we can now make to the situation which we all agreed, as you've just said, Cathy, and leads us to extremely negative choices. No good choices, only bad choices. We really divided up our findings into several headings. First of all was what we call the broad political situation, both within Iraq and in the, in the region. And we talked there about the need to try to achieve, either through the good offices of some appointment of a high-level representative, a new high-level representative from the UN, or in some other institutional way, a degree of political reconciliation within the country. This, of course, is the absolutely basic problem. We also recommended that there should be a much greater diplomatic initiative, and this was in a sense an echo of the similar study group which took place in Washington last year, a much greater diplomatic initiative to try to involve various neighbours of Iraq within in the discussion both of the international situation there and the internal resolution. Now, in a sense, the UK does have a particular locus there because we have maintained diplomatic relations, for example, with Syria, whereas the US is not. And I think it is one of the areas where the UK could possibly seize some kind of diplomatic initiative, particularly if we were to work more closely with our European partners on this. So that's one thing which I hope we can pursue this evening. 
We then looked at the military situation, at the role of the very much reduced British forces in the south of the country and their support role in around Baghdad. There are now only about 5,000 British troops there. Uh, the rec our recommendation was that they should certainly stop any kind of offensive operations, that they should simply now engage primarily in the training role and the capacity building role, which they've begun to do, and where hopefully within a limited period of time they can achieve results which enable them to withdraw completely. They've already done that. They've already handed responsibility to the Iraqi, trained Iraqi personnel in three provinces, and we hope that very quickly they would be able to do that in the Basra area. But the decision that we made was that we should suggest that that decision when we decided, when the UK decided it was the end of the military operation in Iraq, should be based not on the security situation, as it has been up till now, but simply on the basis of whether or not we felt that the Iraqis themselves had the capacity to fulfill those obligations. And as I say, we were encouraged in that by the response that has been in those provinces where responsibility has been handed on. We also considered, um, very importantly, the economic prospects for the country, the way in which the economy could be helped by outside work. We considered some of the civil society questions about rebuilding institutions, and very importantly, and we shall hear, obviously, more about that, the refugee situation and what we can contribute in the humanitarian field. And there we felt that we must very much involve ourselves as the UK in stepping up our support for the UNHCR, particularly, again, looking at the problems for the neighbours of Iraq who've taken the brunt of the refugee influx and where, for example, in Syria and Jordan, the fact that there are two million refugees from Iraq in the region uh, is to some extent undermining and destabilizing those governments themselves. So it's a very important thing to be involved in the uh, humanitarian as well as the political side of the refugee <coughs> crisis. We also talked, and we may want to get into this in more detail, about the uh, activities and the policy positions that the UK government should take when looking to resettle people from Iraq in this country. And again, we felt that there was there were greater efforts that could be made in that direction, particularly in the, uh, as I say, in the resettlement of people, particularly those who have worked for the UK government and the UK forces as translators or whatever it may be, and who have put themselves in greater danger and greater positions of vulnerability as a result. Our sort of overall concluding political and international conclusion was that there is not going to be a stable solution to any of this except in the context of a wider Middle East peace process and a peace agreement and that's something where we as the UK particularly again working with the European colleagues have to put as much pressure as we can on the United States to try and reinvigorate that process in a collective way which makes a wider settlement within the region possible and therefore ultimately hopefully some more stability. Thanks for that. Just one follow-up question there. The Commission, as you say, didn't set a date for no. troops' withdrawal, and Gordon Brown himself says it's wrong to set a timetable. What's your best guess about when British troops will I play? think, as I say, we will pull out when we have enabled this position to be achieved of thinking that it is possible for the Iraqis to take control of those particular areas where the British troops are still, as it were, trying to maintain security. How long that will be, I think it's difficult to guess, but I think if we make the provision explicit that we will do this when we're confident that the Iraqis can take on that responsibility, 
that in a sense will give a timeline which it's much more sensible to try to work to rather than saying we will do this by Christmas or we'll do this by next April because that simply sets up artificial goals which all of those who want to create trouble and uh, as it were undermine any kind of attempts at a peaceful and regular solution to this uh, gives them a goal to aim for. No best guess on when. I don't think so, no. I mean, I, I'm not a military expert. I'm not somebody on the ground who can make any decision about this. All I can say is that we have seen in those uh, provinces where we have made this handover that, interestingly, the Iraqis have stepped up to the mark and are maintaining the security in the way that we hoped that they would do. Damien, you've been there at the sharp end. What is your assessment if we pulled out sooner rather than later? Would it tip the country into civil war? Um, well, very definitely it would be an all-out conflict. Um, the question you would then face is how many neighbouring countries would come in to create various stability zones. I think certainly you'd have the Turks come in. You'd have the Iranians intensify what they're doing already with um, supplying lots and lots to lots of militias. And um, the country would basically not have any force at all that would be able to create sectors of stability and to stop the momentum of any outbreaks of violence. So you would have a complete proliferation of, of military activity. Um, the bigger question of when you can do this switch, I think you have to look at what we're in, which I've, I'm, everyone now acknowledges, even the Americans would acknowledge that we're in some sort of endgame where there has to be inputs into Iraq now that create something that will change the situation either in 2008 or 2009 because there will be a new administration and you know the Democratic president, if there is one, the Republican, or they're both looking at not being the Nixon Nixon. You know, Nixon inherited a war and he prosecuted it for another five years, which, you know, wore him down. The next American president just won't do that. So the Americans have responded to that by in adding to their troop levels. They've changed their strategy in terms of um, working with the, the Sunnis. Um, there's substantial evidence that they've um, been able to engage better with the Saudis and perhaps the Jordanians and they are playing a, a bigger role in getting the Sunni tribes and the Sunni fighters to actually cooperate with the Americans on a tactical level. So, um, you know, that end game has, is already going on in Baghdad, and to a large extent, that isn't factored into this report. Now, it may create conditions in which the recommendations of this report are more conducive to um, getting people who emerge from this to actually talk to each other. That can happen. Um, in Basra, I think the report didn't really acknowledge that the great historic contribution of the British troops down there has been to keep the oil flowing. And by keeping the oil flowing, they've, they've given Baghdad at least some revenue. The government has some money. It has a potential to function. Beyond that, the place has largely descended into a sort of organised chaos. Now that has allowed, if you like, Basra factions to 
have an ownership of society, which is one reason why the oil is still flowing. So, you know, there is a potential that if there are strong enough security forces, as the report says, then um, that Basra will, will have a, a, a slow normalisation um, over the years and, and the British forces will become less relevant. Um, they are largely doing what the report says already. They, they basically go out on targeted missions um, that are very um, intelligence-based um, or if they're called out by their Iraqi troops. Um, they will certainly be doing only that by um, next month. So, um, in a sense, that is already in train, and this, you know, it, you're essentially saying, keep at it, really. Mary, there are various arguments in the, in the report about uh, the the case for a UK troop surge. Where do you stand on that? Well, I was wondering, mm-hmm. as Margaret was talking, whether there's security in those three provinces because the security forces are capable, or whether it's because the British have actually withdrawn. Um, the report acknowledges that 80% of the attacks in the south are against British forces, and that's true throughout. So the question is, is Damien right that the withdrawal would lead to more civil war, or would it actually lead to a reduction of 80% of the attacks? Well, I was only going to say I agree with Mary that, of course, you don't know whether which is cause and effect, and I think that both are true, both that um, British troops have built capacity in the areas where they've now withdrawn, but also you're absolutely right that the attacks are targeted. I mean, I'm surprised that Damien said it would lead to, you know, the withdrawal of British troops would lead to this particular um, horrible description that he had, because I can't believe that 5,000 troops being pulled out would would lead to that. It would have symbolic problems, it would have policy problems, but as far as the security situation is concerned, I'm surprised that that's what he believes. Mary, how do you think you could best achieve some kind of political reconciliation in in Iraq? Well, this is what I wanted to say. I think in the end, security depends on political legitimacy. Uh, Security forces are, of course, important, but whether security forces are effective or not depends on whether people trust them and whether they trust the authority that's giving the orders. And so absolutely central, it seems to me, to any... Uh, solution has to be how the hell do we create legitimate political authority. And uh, what I felt about the report was there was a lot of emphasis on regional dialogue, which I'm strongly in favour of and think is terribly important, but not enough on internal dialogue. I felt that what I, I feel what really is needed is not only how to create legitimacy of the local political authority, but also legitimacy of outside forces. Maybe there is a need for outside forces, but the problem at the moment is that neither the US nor the UK have that kind of legitimacy. And one of the things that does worry me is uh, that if we say, yes, we have a responsibility, whether we were right or wrong to go in, what it neglects is that going in was the original sin. Mm. And that's what has undermined the legitimacy of the United States and Britain, and it's very, very difficult for us to keep any kind of order. Basically, what we can do is to defend the government institutions, and I think what possibly would happen is that the government institutions would no longer be defended. But whether that's necessarily a bad thing or a good thing, I don't know. 
What is needed, I would say, is that we should be very clear that we would like to withdraw, we would like to be replaced by an international presence that doesn't suffer from the stigma that we suffer from. And as part of the aim of achieving that, we need an internal dialogue supported by a regional dialogue to bring that about. Who is the internal dialogue with? Basically, I think it has to be with civil society. And by civil society, I don't just mean the nice people. I don't just mean the sort of women's groups and humanitarian assistance groups, although I think those are absolutely critical and do represent a lot of opinion. I also mean the Sunni clerics, the difficult people, and that that kind of a process is absolutely vital. There was an interesting article by Khalil Zad, who was, as you remember, in charge in Iraq before and is now the U.S. ambassador in the New York Times last week, saying this has to be handed over to the U.N. Mm. to do, and there should be a U.N. special envoy, and I thought that was a very positive step. What about a timetable, though? Where do you stand on timetable for withdrawal? Well, I suppose I, I favour withdrawal as soon as possible, but I would do think that in the end we have to have an international force. So rather than saying we should withdraw when security forces are capable, I would say we should withdraw in conjunction with a political process that allows us to be replaced by international forces. Let's come to Tim. How many refugees do you think the Iraq war has created? Well, uh, uh, the first thing I want to say, I mean, I come, come at this um, and representing an organisation that only is looking at one element of this, really. And I think one of the most important uh, things that the Iraq Commission has done is to meet uh, this uh, ghastly humanitarian situation created by the conflict. And, and the report uh, puts a lot of weight on on the humanitarian issue generally and, and on particularly on the refugee crisis and, and it's good that they do because I think there's been a lot of debate about Iraq generally but in a sense we've been a bit slow to wake up to what is a massive uh, refugee problem and, uh, uh, and people are saying it, it, is, it is on a scale almost of the, the 1948 uh, refugee displacement. I think that the, the Commission has done a service because these statistics are beginning to get known now. The, the figure are absolutely mind-boggling. We're talking about uh, 4 million people uh, displaced either internally or over the border. Uh, and, and that is an absolutely vast number. It's, it's one in six of the population of Iraq. And when you look at the burden on neighbours, um, the figures become mind-boggling again. Uh, a, a country like um, Jordan, which has a population of 5 million, uh, is looking after 750,000 Iraqi refugees. <coughs> Uh, the number of people arriving in Syria from Iraq, uh, and this number is going up, is around about a thousand a day, and they're talking about a million uh, Iraqi refugees in Syria, and there's quite considerable burdens on other neighbouring states as well. And obviously, one of our main issues is about burden sharing. I mean, we are, we are, as, as an organisation, do not get bogged down in who, whether the war was right or wrong, apart from having a situation where conflicts create refugees and refugee situations often ferment conflict, so we are against conflict. And, and as an organisation uh, with a mission to help refugees and a vision for there to be none, basically, in an ideal world, uh, obviously we would like to see conflicts resolved, so we would welcome anything that would, would be involved in that. But what we do specifically want to see is Britain not as a, as a necessarily as a, as a lead el, a partner in the coalition necessarily, but certainly as a, as a leading country in the world, taking more responsibility for refugees. 
And when you think that the number of people who came to this country last year got to this country and were able to make a claim for asylum was about 950, and the number of people arriving in Syria every day is 1,000, I don't think we are sharing the burden. So we're very keen and very pleased that the Commission has said must do more to help the neighbouring countries, but also we must be resettling refugees uh, from the area, the most vulnerable, into this country and other countries in the West too. That's against the prevailing political mood, isn't it? I mean, it seems that there's new crackdown on asylum and immigration every few weeks at the moment. I mean, how do you get the government to do more to fulfil our responsibilities? Well, I mean, I think it's right, but I think the, 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 the government's line is always that their public opinion is so much against them. I think the public at least understands what the situation is, Iraq is, and a, and a resettlement of the most vulnerable refugees, not a few hundred, a few thousand, I would say. I mean, they, 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 there's something like 140,000 people have registered with the UNHCR for resettlement, and the numbers who are, are being resettled are tiny, and, and all our government has said is they'll look at it at the moment. I think they need to move a lot faster than that. And I do think if you, if you um, look at how public opinion can be prepared for these issues, in giving my evidence to the Commission, I went back and had a look at um, what we did when we had the Kosovan resettlement programme. Uh, I, people understood what was going on there, and public support for Kosovan resettlement was very high. And I think the same would happen here. And I just make one point. One of the issues that was picked up and, and has been made in the Iraq Commission is, is our particular responsibility for people who uh, have worked with the British Army, translators, interpreters, people like that. I think that is important. And it's interesting that the Danish government just the last, this last week announced that they are airlifting out 200 people who work directly with them because they know how dangerous it is for them to just leave them behind when, when the troops leave. But I think it's more than that. I don't, I, we in particular are concerned that, that as it were, our resettlement programme doesn't just extend to interpreters and people who work with, with the British Army because there are a huge number of extremely vulnerable people who are not safe even in the neighbouring countries and I think we ought to be actively offering them a new life. It might be a, a new life forever in this country. Just while you're still in the hot seat, what, what has the impact of the war been in your view on community relations here? Well, I'm incredibly negative and I think every, everybody uh, accepts that and one of the issues that particularly concerns us is obviously, and, uh, and I know that Commission took evidence on this, that there are sections of our society who've been extremely radicalised by, by this war. Uh, some of them have uh, it, it resorted to um, extreme measures. We are, we, we, there's not a direct causal link, obviously, between the Iraq war and some of the homegrown terrorism, but it does concern us that there are elements of our, our community who, uh, who, who feel so strongly about this that they've, they've resorted to uh, very extreme forms of protest. And, and some of the backwash of that does, does affect our minority communities, including refugees. And, and any of you who saw the headlines last week uh, about the uh, 21st of seven would-be bombers, uh, it was all refugee bombers. They were actually, of course, they came here as children of refugee families. Uh, they, they certainly didn't abuse the asylum system to get in here and cause terrorism. But it's a, it, it, it's not, there's no direct link between all of us, this, but the whole issue of Iraq has, has caused terrible tensions within our, in our community, and that isn't helpful for refugees trying to rebuild their lives here. 
Baroness Jay, the Commission admits that uh, some of its recommendations are at variance with the US. Mm. Gordon Brown appeared recently to dip a toe in the water in terms of distancing ourselves from the US, but he then perhaps backpedaled. Mm. How brave do you think he needs to be <coughs> in terms of US-Anglo-American relations? Well, I don't think it's a question of being brave. As you said yourself, and Mary confirmed this, we're going down a different route, for example, on the military situation. We've already, that's already been explicit. You know, we've, we're going, we've been quite clear about the, we're not going to have a surge, we're going in precisely the opposite direction. As I said at the beginning, I think that we can do things particularly, and I pick up Mary's point again about internal dialogue, where if we were, I mean, if you want to use the word brave, you can, I would just say realistic. We could open up channels within the community with people like Moktada al-Sadr, with um, al-Sistani, with some of the people who are completely legitimate representatives of large sections of the Iraqi community. And the Americans won't, in principle, or for some reason, principle I suppose is the right word, won't speak to you. I mean, there's no reason why we shouldn't. And I think that here again, we're, it's very important that we do it. I think... I again echo the points that have been made. I do think we have a credibility problem because of having been involved in the original uh, invasion as part of the coalition. But I think we could restore some of that if we were seen to go back to what I would hope we would do, which is to internationalise the whole problem, particularly vis-à-vis the EU, and extend the quartet approach to Iran if we could, and also, most importantly, the UN. You mentioned the quartet there. Mm. How does Tony Blair's appointment as Middle East envoy, do you think, uh, is that going to be a help or a hindrance? Well, it's it's not strictly relevant to Iraq, although, as I said at the end of what I said, um, I think it's very important that we see whatever goes on in Iraq and however we can usefully remain engaged in some of the positive aspects of Iraq policy. It is relevant and important to see that in the context of the whole Middle East settlement. But one of the things I think is very useful, which one of um, Gordon Brown's uh, closest allies, Ed Balls, um, was working on before he became Minister for Children and Education, was uh, a proposal around what he called the economic roadmap for the Middle East, which was specifically about re-engaging with the Palestinian economy, reinvigorating the Palestinian economy in such a way that that gave much greater hope to the Palestinian communities. And in a sense, you know, again, one can look at the Northern Ireland example here, although no two parallels are precise, but we did see in Northern Ireland in the 90s when people became more prosperous, and it's happened in other conflict areas, there is a less of an enthusiasm for radical extremist political action. And I think the basis of the Balls report on the Palestinians could be applied in some ways to some parts of the Iraq situation. Great. Jamie, what, what do you see as the, the role of the media in, in uh, shaping both public opinion and also government policy towards the war? Um, well, firstly, can I just clarify my earlier remarks about the military. I was actually more talking about the whole country, um, though I do think that there is uh, probably greater than even chance that Basra would actually erupt into mm. factional fighting if, no, if the British... No, I just meant the role in the whole country. Yeah. Quite small. Um, yeah, but it, it, there is an underappreciated element of special forces activity by Britain that um, has actually been quite significant recently. Um, as for the media, um, I mean, Iraq... In a sense, you know, we have our traditional function, which is to expose abuses of power and tell people what's going on. Um, In a war, that tends to be critical. It tends to be very necessary. And, um, 
you know, there's an access problem, if you like, in terms of getting out information. So the people who try to fund Iraqis um, who report very bravely, very many Iraqi journalists have died in this war, um, need to keep doing that. We need to get information out from the ground and from, from the grassroots. In terms of the domestic debate, it's actually quite difficult because people have chosen their positions. They've um, decided what Iraq means to them, and in many senses, Iraq is, is a concept that um, informs um, their entire opinion about the region and the government that they, that they um, are governed by. So when you actually come to what each individual report means and, and what it is actually feeding into people, it has to go through that filter. And so that's, that's quite difficult in terms of an evolving situation. So essentially, essentially the media have to keep at it. We have to keep reporting what's going on. Um, and we have to try and deal with the attitudes that people have. But most people by now have made up their minds. And so we have to recognize that. Just talking of uh, people who have made up their minds, Mary, there's a YouGov poll in the Commission report which talks about 40% being in favour of withdrawal within 12 to 18 months, withdrawal, troop, troop withdrawal, 37% as soon as possible. Do you think the government did enough to listen to the public on this? Well, obviously not. <laughs> um, and the, uh, once again, uh, the real mistake was invading because there was a huge opposition, the biggest demonstration in our history. And um, that was a real big mistake. And I think, you know, this has continued. It's been very, very difficult for the government. And I do think there was this debate about Harriet Harman when on Newsnight she said we should acknowledge the anger. And I think that's absolutely right. But it's not just to the British, it's also to the Iraqis. Um, and so I think it's really important to say, look... You know, we, 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 we made a mistake, actually. <laughs> but we want to make it right, and we want to do what's right. And I think if we decided, after careful thought, that we can't withdraw immediately, uh, people would understand that if they understood that we were really what we wanted to do was to take our responsibility seriously. And how do you think what's happened in Iraq has affected future military action? How has it sort of tied Gordon Brown's hands in that respect? Well, perhaps in a good way. <laughs> um, the only thing that I'm um, sort of sad about is that I think it's discredited humanitarian intervention. Uh, and I think that was the problem, that Kosovo, in a way, was considered a humanitarian intervention. It certainly was designed to stop the Serb um, abuses of Albanians, and I was in favor of that uh, but the problem was that it was carried out through bombing and um, I think it did provide a kind of precedent for Iraq uh, and now people don't, are very much anti-intervention which I think is a problem not vis-a-vis -vis Iran say but a problem vis-a-vis -vis Darfur mm -hmm. um, so I think yes uh, the war has made people very very wary of intervention, but there are some kinds of interventions to prevent genocide, to stop ethnic cleansing, which are good things, and that's something that we've uh, that is going to be very difficult to do in the future. 
Baroness Joe just heard you mutter Zimbabwe. I mean, do you think there are places where we should be intervening where no. we're now not? <laughs> I, was <laughs> be, I was picking up on the point about Darfur and said, well, you could make the same case in that case for Zimbabwe or whatever, as we did for Sierra Leone. Can I just pick up on one other point, which is that when you say tie Gordon Brown's hands, I mean, Gordon Brown himself has proposed, and I imagine it will somehow be put into force, whether by a statute or whatever, that the House of Commons should in future make the, you know, there should be no, as it were, royal prerogative, as it's called, on for a Prime Minister to be able to take these decisions alone. And, all right, the House of Commons did vote for the Iraq invasion, but I think that is a very good change that's going to be, come about as a result of this. The, the Commission raises the, the prospect or the possibility of the US taking action in Iran, military action, what do you, well, where I mean, would we stand on we, that? We, don't, we unfortunately don't have any sanction as a parliament on the, uh, the decisions of the United States President. Well, I but what would, would we do? Oh, I would in personally be totally opposed to it, and I hope that we would stand firmly against it. Where, where do you think Gordon Brown would stand on? I mean, I think that's, you know, I have no idea, but I would hope that he would, as it were, be promoting a kind of internationalist response. And again, I mean, this is where we do have a lock us through the court air. Okay. I was just going to, just on, on the, the intervention point, because I'm, I'm sure you're right, but I think that, the, and, and, and obviously it's a very fraught issue as to whether you can effectively intervene humani- in a humanitarian way, but one of the things that I think we've learned from Iraq, and we could certainly apply to these other situations, is that intervening, uh, even if your intentions of view is often very difficult. But one thing you can do in this situation is provide protection for people fleeing from those situations. And, and one of the, uh, we're not widening out into this, I'm sure, today, but one of the issues we want to keep hammering away at is, is that the, the one thing a, a country can often do in these situations is open its doors to people in this situation. Um, that is a helpful thing that you can do. And um, unfortunately, our government does exactly the reverse. If I can agree with you on that, I mean, I think one of the problems with interventions up till now is that there hasn't Sorry, been... One of the problems with interventions up till now is that there hasn't been any concern about the aftermath, and this was true both of Bosnia and of Kosovo, that you've got reverse ethnic cleansing in Kosovo after the British troops came in. You've got the same in Bosnia. There wasn't concern about human rights. This was much, much more serious in Iraq. So I think that's one lesson that's been learned. Another lesson, interestingly, which is what Petraeus is trying to do with the general search, but unfortunately he can't do it because of the problems of the insurgency and US credibility, is that such interventions must aim at protecting people. You can't do them from the air at long distance. Um, That there's a method, a different method if you're going to try and do humanitarian. And then finally, I wanted to say something about the voting and so on. I think it isn't just that Gordon Brown said we must in future always have a vote in Parliament, but I also think those people who in their heart of hearts were not in favour of the war but voted for it because they wanted to be loyal to the government have learned how long they've learned for that war is too important to put party and government loyalties before such a crucial decision. And that's a lesson which I think is very important for the future. Do you think the politicians have learned, Maras J. 
What, in the, the context of an, having that sort of vote? Yes, of course, because this is a proposal which Gordon Brown has made, which as far as I know, no one has opposed. But will politicians in future put their conscience before their careers? <laughs> a few more bites. You're very optimistic. I think putting your conscience before your career. It's not about putting your conscience before your career. In most people's cases who were, were opposed to what the, the government did in 2003, it was a political decision. It was about the politics of it. Unless anyone on the panel has got any other burning issues they want to raise, I want to open it to the audience now. Um, if I take questions in threes, just so we can get through as many as possible, so wave your arms about. I can see one at the back there. Um, when everybody is speaking about here trying to induce Sistani or Al-Sadr as a legitimate party to the Iraqi problem, one is always missing the point. Sorry, do you mind just starting that again? Uh, sure. When we are talking about including Sistani or figures like Muqtada Sadr into the picture of Iraqi problem, uh, we are usually missing the point that uh, the core of the problem is that Iraqis, as compared to their previous situation during Saddam regime now, uh, are just being provided four hours of electricity a day. Uh, they are seeing more and more deaths and conflicts in their, in their streets. This is one, one aspect of the problem. Uh, I have read the report by the commission. It's been quite elaborate and quite comprehensive. Uh, it touched upon issues of military, political, and economic matters. Uh, one of the issues that comes to mind has been always relating to the situation of Kirkuk, which I believe is likely to create more and more controversy on the days ahead because the Iraqi constitution foresees a referendum shall take place in December. Uh, shall I just take the position of the commission that since it's not a matter of interest for the UK, it has not been included in the report, or you simply do not see it as an important matter. Thank you. What was the, the question? The question is basically about <laughs> whether it's been a deliberate thing to exclude the issue of Kirkuk out, uh, uh, in the report published by the Commission. Thank you. Second question. At the back there in the white stripy shirt. Uh, perhaps you could give me an example of legitimate governments in the Middle East that uh, Iraq could be based upon. Okay. Uh, in the brown jacket in the middle there, if you could wait for the mic, that would be great. I, I would like to make the comment that probably the basic issue, I'm an Iraqi by the way, and I was in Baghdad uh, a month ago. Uh, the, the basic issue I think is very much underlined by what Damien has said when he referred to the U.S. Uh, negotiating with the Jordanians and the Saudis uh, uh, to, to get the Sunni tribes to support uh, their efforts against international terrorism, I think what should happen is that the, whether it's the U.S. or neighboring countries should support the, re, uh, the central government to fulfill its duties rather than go and do their own thing. Baroness Jay, do you want to respond to the first question? Um, not really, because I wasn't, to be absolutely honest, I wasn't quite sure what was being driven at. We certainly did not look at every single issue which comes up in Iraq for the simple reason. For example, we talked a little bit about uh, the impact on this society here of the co conflict, and we felt that we hadn't had sufficient evidence to make a sufficiently 
good and pointed remarks, so we didn't talk about it. Um, and on uh, Kurdistan and Kirkuk, we did mention that that was in some ways uh, an object lesson in positive thinking because there were, for example, trade missions going to Kurdistan. It was the economy was beginning to be, uh, in a sense, normalized. But we didn't, you're quite right, talk about Kirkuk for the simple reason that it was one of those issues which you're again right, the UK has not been particularly and specifically involved in and it wasn't something which we took evidence on. Uh, Mary, example of legitimate government in the Middle East. Turkey. <laughs> Expand. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the election results were very positive for Turkey, actually, and I think this government is becoming a legitimate government that um, uh, it was democratically elected. Uh, so I think Turkey is my best example of a legitimate government. But of course behind the question is a bigger question about legitimacy because uh, by legitimacy what, what I really was meaning was something less than democratic. What I was meaning by legitimacy was just a government that people actually feel that they are ready to obey the law. Because in the end, unless you have absolute terror, people, you have security because people obey the law and people don't feel that the government is so illegitimate they have to take to arms to protest. Um, and of course there are rather few of those in the Middle East also. But I think what I really would argue is that it's harder and harder now to sustain purely coercive regimes and that in the end most regimes have to develop some form of consensual government um, you know Iran for all that we don't like it for all the fact that the government the elections were highly flawed for all the arrests <coughs> nevertheless uh, nevertheless there is nobody is trying to overthrow, or very few, there is a tiny few, trying to overthrow the government by force. And I think what I'm talking about is trying to reach a situation where people accept the government and don't try to overthrow it by force, which is quite different from saying they're kept uh, from doing this because of the effectiveness of security forces. I don't think security forces can ever be wholly effective. Baroness Jade, did you have something to say on the third question? Well, I think the, um, the question of the speaker uh, emphasised what I think I said and Damien said it right at the beginning, which was the importance of the neighbours, of the neighbour countries in this whole situation. I agree with you that it is very important that they do uh, take up the positions of making it quite clear that they don't, they want to negotiate with people they do want to undermine, don't want to undermine the position of Iraq. The interesting thing in the evidence that we heard was that some people said that of course for the neighbours until almost very recently, and I don't know whether this is your experience, were quite pleased to see the Americans bogged down in Iraq and therefore keeping out of any interference or any involvement in their societies. Uh, and it's only been very recently that they've come <coughs> to the conclusion that actually the Iraq situation is sufficiently critical that the destabilization of the whole region is potentially at risk and therefore have been much more willing to engage on some of the points that you, I think, quite rightly raised. Let's have three more questions. Uh, green jacket in the middle there. Can you wait for the mic? And if you would make sure it's a question, not a statement, that would be great. Thank you. I understand that Iraq is fragmented along many, many lines, uh, religious, uh, ethnical, etc. 
did seems to be corroborated by what uh, Mr. McElroy has said and what the things that I've read in, in the report. And uh, in many cases, these different groups are voluntarily or involuntarily affiliated and manipulated by external powers. To which extent, what uh, Professor Calder was saying, can you uh, promote dialogue and consensus between these people that have arrived to very contrasted positions if they are not forced, cajoled by their external uh, patrons? That is one thing. And the other thing is you were talking about um, us or the UK or, or, or the Western multinational force leaving uh, Iraq and being replaced by another international force at the same time that supposedly would have more legis legitimacy. Uh, legitimacy and power to maintain some security would be what? Uh, effectives from Fiji Islands, from uh, Africa somewhere, from some Sunni countries, which would be part of... Uh, I don't really... Or if it's some Western countries, wouldn't it be still Western forces? I would like you to elaborate on that. Okay, great, thanks. Uh, black shirt in the middle row there. By bringing in new international forces, wouldn't that raise the problem of a moral hazard for the future, future interventions in the region? And uh, concerning internationalization of the, of the approach, we've, saw, we've seen more withdrawals than arrivals in this problem. So could you explain and define better what international means, please? Okay. Uh, blue, man in the blue shirt, just... Uh um, may I bring in the issue of economics, specifically the hydrocarbon law? The Commission, in its recommendations, touches on the issue and says the UK should not seek to directly intervene in Iraq's sovereign affairs, including the drafting of the hydrocarbons law. Now, the problem is, of course, that the UK and particularly the US have already interfered um, and put a great deal of pressure on the Iraqi government, uh, including through the US benchmarks and also through uh, the, US, the British Embassy uh, supporting delegations from Shell and BP. Uh, and um, so that intervention has already taken place and the Iraqi parliament is currently discussing the hydrocarbons law, which the vast majority of Iraqis recently polled uh, oppose, and they oppose the, the sellout of Iraq's oil to foreign companies. Did the commission consider saying something stronger on this? Um, also very briefly on the issue of Iraq's foreign debt, Britain still claims over £200 million uh, of debt from Iraq. This is my Lent Saddam Hussein during the 1980s and the Iran-Iraq war. Is it right that we should still claim this money from Iraq? Great. So, Mary, Iraq's fragmented. To what extent can you promote dialogue? And can I say something about economics and hydrocarbon law too? Um, very good questions. I think absolutely that you do need external patrons as well. Sorry. I, I do think that you need external patrons as well. I'm not saying that you only need internal dialogue and that's why I commend the Commission's recommendation that there be a regional dialogue. I think that's terribly important as well but I don't think that, I think the core of it is an internal dialogue and that that has to happen. Uh, on who should the international forces be another very good question <laughs> to which I don't have an easy answer and I've discussed this at length with many people. Um, maybe it should be the neighbouring states that's one possibility um, 
But I think maybe the answer again is that that has to be part of the political process. It might even be bringing back Western powers, but under a completely different label and a different guise. But something's needed. That's what I'm trying to say. And it is a moral hazard, but there's also a moral hazard of... Of, of allowing the Iraq conflict just to go on and on. And, and from my experience of these kinds of sectarian wars, they are extraordinarily difficult to end. Uh, and they're extraordinarily difficult to contain. Once people start fighting, they hate each other much more than they ever did before. And once they start finding that fighting is a way of making an income, which is also another very important element in Iraq, they need to go on fighting to continue making an income. So they're terribly difficult to end, and they spread over borders. Refugees is part of the reason they spread out over borders, but not only. I wanted to say something about both the economic proposals and the hydrocarbon law. I think what an awful lot of people are missing with the hydrocarbon law is that it's actually very good in terms of integrating Iraq. It's been discussed by everybody, the Kurds, the people in the South, and it actually does offer a mechanism for using the incentive of oil to bring about a political solution. And I think that's much more important than the issue of privatization. An awful lot of people in Iraq are making this the classic nationalistic argument, which I have some sympathy with, that this is about selling off the Iraqi oil sector. Actually, what it's about is using oil as an incentive to keep the federation and the integrity of Iraq. And I think it would be important for us to focus on that because it's a possible way out. On the economic roadmap, I mean, I'm incredibly... I couldn't agree more about the importance of economics. The problem is it's a catch-22 situation. I was in Gaza and the West Bank in March, and the checkpoints and the roads and the lack of movement make it absolutely impossible to have economic development. And the aid simply disappears. I don't know where it disappears, but it disappears. And so it's one of these situations where you can't de-link the issue of politics, security, and economics. Tim, I wanted to ask you about the, the debt situation. Is it right that Britain claims debt from Iraq? Well, I'm afraid I don't know the answer to that. Can I, do, I, do, I, I will take the opportunity to just pick up on one point, which is slightly related to earlier on, and I think what, one of the other things is. I think one of the things... I, I, I'm, I'm taking my opportunity, if you like, to raise one other issue that concerns us, which, I, which, which did come up in the report, which is to, to um, perhaps overplay... Um, how um, stable and good the situation is in the northern protectorate areas. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I, unlike, I imagine many people in the audience, never mind in the panel, have never been to these areas of Iraq, so I rely, as I do for most of my information on this, on, on the Iraqi diaspora in this country and the exiles. But my understanding of the situation is that, that although things are a lot better, um, better is a very much a relative term in the Iraqi context, and that, in fact, one of, one of the things that we, we, we made a point to the Commission and wasn't picked up was that uh, the return of Iraqis in this country back to, to Iraq is still going on. It's going largely to the northern areas on the basis that those are safer areas. But, but both the, the Iraqi exiles themselves and indeed the authorities in those areas are not happy with that policy of enforced removal, which I think is destabilising and, and is a misuse of resources. On, on, the, on the issue of 
of, of debt, all I can say would be my personal opinion, which I would have thought the last thing we want to be doing is chasing up the debt, but I'm sure there are people who know much more about that than me. Baroness Jay, the hydrocarbon law, do you want to...? Well, I could do I mean, all I need to do, really, is just read the paragraph in which we talked about this, because it makes the point that Mary made. That we said that although I take the questioner's point, I think it was somebody in the gallery who said that we are, have already been involved in it. But what we said was the UK shouldn't seek to directly interfere in including the drafting of Iraq sovereign affairs. However, it should recognise that a fair distribution of revenues to all the people of Iraq from Iraq's primary national resource will be essential to facilitate national reconciliation, which is exactly the point which Mary was making. I think, as it says at the beginning of this chapter that we uh, wrote on economic reconstruction and capacity building, and it's a quote from uh, the director of the Overseas Development Institute and being chair of that organisation, I would quote it, wouldn't I? But it is important, I think, to look at this in the context of all the points that have been made about economics, in which um, the director said one of, to the Commission one of the remarkable things about Iraq is that it's gone from being a middle-income country to something that looks like a failed state in an extraordinarily short period of time. And, of course, that is the real problem, that potentially this is a very, very rich country indeed. And we should look at some of the ways in which we could use the fact that it could potentially become rich again and has got all these huge oil revenues to set up benchmarks, I think, for development and so on in the way that we do with many other countries. We shouldn't, as it were, apply a double standard to Iraq that does have the potential, which many countries, for example, in Africa, don't have to be self-sufficient in its own primary product in a very short period of time. Well, I've taken the questions in the wrong order, but coming to the second question on new international forces and is this a moral hazard for future interventions? Damien, do you have a view on that? Um, I think, as someone did say, the um, number of countries who are actually providing military forces in Iraq has dropped very, very dramatically. So you do have real practical problems with saying that you can have some new reinvigorated more legitimate, more internationally based, more UN-led um, uh, military force. One of, one of the big problems is that the UN, as it exists in Iraq, as an institution, um, just about a week or so ago, the Secretary General was asked something about um, a, a, a better UN profile in Iraq, and he's he made it contingent on the safety of UN staff. The UN acts in Iraq primarily towards the safety of its staff first and then whatever it can do in between that. And that's been a real hampering factor. I know it's, it came from the fact that there was a very devastating and bloody attack on its headquarters in Baghdad. I was in Baghdad that day. I saw it and I, I know the shock it caused the institution but in some sense that the UN has to recover from that and make real efforts to recognise that it does have to recover from that before it could bring in any sort of military force that it was the political director of, which is essentially what we're talking about. Can I just um, add to that? Because um, we certainly didn't say in the Commission report that we were looking to a UN military presence, but we did talk a lot about the importance of doing exactly what Damien's just described, which is the UN, in a sense, getting its uh, resources back in terms of a very high-level new representative in Iraq representing the UN. And um, one of our commissioners, Sir David Haney, who used to be the 
US, the UK ambassador at the UN made the point that, of course, he, I think he did this in the Channel 4 program, that the UN is very much a demand-led organisation and that if a consorted group of the Security Council or a wider group than that asked or demanded that there should be a better and a higher level UN presence in the Iraq, then it would happen. Three more questions. The guy in the white T-shirt in the middle there. Thank you. On the question of refugees and people who have been dislocated and uprooted in Iraq, I think this is a very critical and question that begs to be answered urgently because it involves humanitarian, legal, and ethical issues. I think the Commission has undermined and understated the urgency of the refugee problem in Iraq. As mentioned by Finch, over 2 million dislocated outside the country. What about those being dislocated inside the country? The other question, there is a responsibility and direct responsibility for the occupying forces who enter Iraq. We are not going into the legality of it. I think they have, under international law, a direct responsibility. And there is no point to shoulder that onto the United Nations. They have to tackle it directly. They have to take measures, urgent measures, <coughs> to solve it. I don't say they should allow people to open door immigration, but wherever they are, whether in Syria, Jordan, within Iraq, they have to be sheltered, cared for, provide education for their children, and health service. This is the least that UK and USA can do. Thank you. Same row, uh, lady in the black top. Um, this question is actually to Baroness Jay. Um, I'm an Iraqi doctor, and I was quite concerned to hear during the commission about the failing state of the health system there. I'm quite interested to hear what the commission has recommended to improve this. Uh, go and stripe your T-shirt down here, if you could wait for the mic. <laughs> Well, um, I have an Iraqi question. Uh, of course, the coalition forces help the Iraqis to, to make their country a weak country on the hand of the militants. And the place of clash or fight between the coalition forces and the neighborhood countries, each one wants to get the influence in Iraq, not for the Iraqis, but for their own. <coughs> so the question here, at the time you say that uh, all the solutions are painful, there are some neighborhood countries who are saying that uh, all the solutions are going on their side. So is this, uh, uh, let's say, decision or suggestion a kind of surrender from the uh, British side for the Iranian side? Or? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that last. Is it a kind of surrender from the British side in front of the... Surrender? Influence? Yeah. You mean asking the neighbors? Yeah. Great. So uh, the first question on refugees, Tim, the people who have been dislocated. The Commission has understated the urgency of the refugee problem and the UK and the US, it's the least they can do to take urgent action to help refugees. Perhaps Tim and then Baroness Jay. 
Well, I mean, I, 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 I would commend the Commission, actually, for, for, for taking this issue quite seriously. I don't think it's fair to say that they've underplayed it. I think, as it were, the international community has. It is a massive problem, and I think we, we have been slow to wake up to it. And, and as I understand it, I mean, one of the issues, I think, was, as, as a colleague of mine from UNHCR said, initially, a lot of the displacement wasn't wasn't in some ways the sort of classic refugee situation where you're talking about uh, water bottles and plastic sheeting type of thing. A lot of people were going across into countries like Syria and Jordan where they had friends, they, they had places they could live, they could even work. They certainly had savings, and, and so in a sense it was a little bit under the radar. Well, it's, certainly, yeah. it's certainly not that now, and I take your point. Uh, what, there's two issues. One, that there is real humanitarian need in those countries, and people are needing to be fed and housed, and they're running out of money. And the internal display situation is getting very, very critical. There are camps now on the borders because Syria and Jordan, who've actually been very generous in this situation and haven't locked their, their borders by and large, are finding they're overwhelmed. And so more and more people are being uh, displaced within the country and not getting any further than that. And, and something much more needs to be done. I'm absolutely with you on that. I, I, I just have a, having a quick look at the, the figures. We, we, we pledged something like... Um, uh, six million pounds towards the uh, UNHCR uh, figure. They, they, they asked for, for um, several, um, uh, quite a lot of money um, for their program, a media program on this. And we announced, uh, our government announced back in March, six million pounds to help with that. And, and, and well, I don't know what we're spending a day on our, on our military intervention, but I suspect it's an awful lot more than that. So we would want, I, I think we do need to, to urgently rebalance where we're spending our money, and a lot of it ought to be on the humanitarian question. Just what we, the only issue we have as Refugee Council about this business about whether there's a particular responsibility to the refugees in this situation because we, we were part of the group that invaded Iraq in the first place. Uh, I, I'm not trying to get out of this because I do think there is a key moral responsibility for Britain and America along with the international community on this. We're always a little bit careful because we don't want to get into a situation where, as it were, there becomes a, 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 a set sort of precedent in these situations where if we were part of uh, a military intervention that caused Iraqi flight, then we take responsibility for it. But if, for instance, in areas where we weren't, which perhaps Darfur would be an example, we have no responsibility for it. We think protection is a genuinely uh, international issue, and Britain, as a rich, powerful country, ought to be looking to provide protection for the world's refugees. Iraq is a critical issue, but there are many other critical um, issues as well. And, and so while, while we want Britain to play a much, much bigger role in looking at the Iraq refugee situation, we don't, in a, in a sense, want to say that somehow because we started this war, it's our responsibility. It's our responsibility as a leading part of the international community. Baroness Jay, if you could take the point about... Um uh, the Commission's on State of the Urgency and also the point from the Iraqi doctor about failing State of the Well, I, I mean, I simply don't agree that we understated it and I'm glad that uh, Tim accepts that and we were actually very much helped in our deliberations and the evidence we took by having one of our commissioners being Maeve Sherlock, who until very recently was the director of the Refugee Council, and there was a huge emphasis both in the evidence we took and in, I think, in some many of the recommendations on the humanitarian side, and I'm very glad that Tim accepts that. On the health service point, we didn't make recommendations about how the Iraqi health service should be improved. I think we were very disturbed 
by the evidence we took, particularly from some of the women doctors who were describing how they were particularly targeted as professionals and as women uh, by the whichever forces it were, militias or insurgency. And one woman doctor gave evidence to us saying that she personally had 20 professional colleagues, all of whom had been assassinated. I mean, all of that was extremely shocking. We were not, frankly, going to make proposals about how the Iraqi health service should be reconstructed, but it's really many of the points which Tim has alluded to and have been discussed in terms of professional refugees, giving them the situation where they can feel comfortable in this country and then hopefully go back to do that work themselves are very important. And anything we can do in terms of humanitarian assistance to the health services is very significant. But I think we always feel slightly in this country that we could learn from at least pre the pre-war situation from Iraq on some of these issues. For example, I always remember being told a long time ago that Iraq had women in medical schools long before we did in this country. So I don't think we can really give many lessons on some of those things. Damien, is it surrender to ask other international forces to take on our burden? Um, well, this comes back to the Colin Powell um, statement to Bush that you break it, you own it. And um, there is a certain sense in which if the West and specifically Britain and specifically America had the willpower to continue doing this, there is no doubt they could continue doing this. It would require bearing a certain amount of sacrifice, but that they could do it. There is not the political willpower and there is certainly not the political support anymore, it looks like, in this country and probably in America as well. To, to do that so you have to recognise reality at some stage and you have to say um, would outside intervention make a difference would, should we still be talking in terms of, of surrender or should we be looking at what can make things better and I think that's you have to make cold judgments you can't anymore uh, rely on rhetorical points about moral responsibility about surrender about um, uh, you know, sticking in there about bringing it on. All those things are, are, are detached from reality in the sense that we have a situation that confronts us. We have to try and come up with something to make it better. We have to make a judgment, and at this stage it looks like there'll have to be a break point. Now, what that break point is and how you if you can engineer a solution which is better and which is based on other countries coming in and other countries either negotiating or helping in the negotiated process or providing troops is, I, I think, still unclear. Three more questions. So, uh, gentleman at the front here. In the braces. Do we have a mic down the front here? Uh, there is one school of thought, and I think I belong to there, that uh, uh, U.S. has no intention to leave Iraq building big bases, you see, so many bases as such, and geopolitical interest of the United States versus Israel. Uh, what's the pen views on that? So just, you, you said the geopolitical interests of uh, the U.S. and Israel? In Israel. Yeah. Okay. And the guy here in the white shirt? Earlier there, was, earlier there was talk about legitimate government. Um, 
But do we have a legitimate government in Iraq since it was a government whose very um, existence was brought about by the USA with the actual people from outside of Iraq, the political parties becoming involved rather than from inside? And should we not now at least be pressuring the government to ensure that those who are inside the government who are operating militias, which is causing a lot of the chaos, should not be forced to rein them in and that the government and the parliament should not be allowed to pressurise women MPs and even have one who has fled for a life of uh, death threats. Um, should there not be, at this stage still, international pressure to ensure that the government of Iraq represents all the people of Iraq, not behaves like uh, clan leaders, and ensure that that aid which is given does not go missing. The corruption is unbelievable in Iraq. Thank you. Uh, the lady in the sort of fleece jacket. I'm interested in how the commission um, report addresses the issue of prosecuting war crimes, especially in light of the al decision, which basically the result of that was that there's no forum for victims of war crimes to prosecute their cases. And is there a potential to establish truth and reconciliation commission in Iraq? Great. So, uh, first question, uh, the U.S. geopolitical interest in protecting Israel. Mary. Um, my answer is I don't think the U.S. is monolithic. I'm sure there were some people who, when they invaded Iraq, did so because they wanted bases in Iraq, they wanted control over Iraqi oil. It turns out if that was what they wanted, it was extremely stupid. Um, because... Uh, what about bases? What? Bases too, because they're unstable. It's made the U.S. incredibly unpopular, and oil is lower. Oil, oil the level of oil production is lower than it was before the war. <coughs> so there may still be people in Iraq who still in America who believe that, but the majority of Americans don't believe that anymore. At least that's what the polls show. So my view is this is something. This is not. Forever. Uh, it's about debate, and luckily, America is still a country where you can have debate. Um, can I just say, just quickly, on, on, the, on, a, on the other couple of questions? First, on the, of course, this isn't a legitimate government, otherwise, there wouldn't be the war continuing. And of course, it's a government that is largely, was largely based on expatriates brought in by US. Uh, the US and also is protected it, it's in the green zone protected by American forces and would collapse without the presence of American forces I don't know whether that means um, Iraq would be better off without any government at all or whether it does provide some modicum of governments that's a question that needs to be studied and we need to consult just people about just before you move on to the next Question: uh, Women Sorry, MPs on UN that point. Ba- UN-based government, so the UN would actually reconstitute us. No, I think what we need is a political process, really consulting people and discussing with people and with the neighbours about what, ha- how we can reconstitute 
a political process. Just on that same question, uh, women MPs under pressure in Iraq. <coughs> well, it's the same as the point I made on the earlier question about women professional doctors. I mean, there is clearly a, a sort of witch hunt, unfortunately, which is not a part of the political, but I suspect part of the religious process. And academics. And academics, exactly. And academics, yeah. Yeah. And Mary, your final... Well, I just wanted to say I think that was one of the biggest mistakes, or one among the biggest mistakes of the uh, Coalition Provisional Authority when it came in, was not actually to give priority because this sweeping debarthification uh, along with the dissolution of the army really contributed to the insurgency. And what was really needed was to distinguish between those people who really committed crimes under the regime and um, those people who just joined the Ba'ath Party because it was the only way to get a job. So I think there's, transitional justice has been inadequate and insofar as it's been carried out by this government rather than internationally, it's also been profoundly flawed. Uh, and there needs to be another process in the future. It's terribly important. What about war crimes? <coughs> uh, sorry, Tim, you wanted I just, to... Well, I just wanted to make, make a point about uh, reflecting on a couple of things that have been said before, because I think one of, the, one of the great tragedies here is that uh, I, I at least know through my contacts and people I work with, people who've been um, refugees of Saddam's regime, often the, 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 the cream of Iraqi society, um, p p very talented people, people who stood up to that regime, who were very hopeful of, 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 of once Saddam went of returning and rebuilding that country and have now not had that chance. And we're now having, an, an, we're going to have another situation and we're definitely seeing it with the targeting of, of people like um, uh, academics and, uh, and doctors and women and, and minorities and what have you. We're going to see a, 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 a large um, element of Iraqi society, the sort of people who could really help to build that place, um, being forced out. I would say, of course, that I think it's important that we provide protection for those people while they need it. Uh, that will be, in some cases, in this country, which is why I feel so strongly we need to um, provide more protection and, and allow more Iraqis to get here. But one of the issues must be about thinking about having a situation where protection is provided as, as much as one can in the region because the, the long-term object must be, and all, all the Iraqi exiles I know uh, want to see, if they can, uh, Iraq rebuilt uh, and they being a part of it, not, not having a solution where um, so most people who are coming out of Iraq will never be able to get back. But it is, it is such a tragedy to see people, uh, and if you like, um, sort of double exiled by, by Saddam first and then by this inept war second. Just very quickly on war crimes because we're running out of time and I want to get one last round of questions in. Did you no, I wanted to just address the thing about your, your question about the US. I mean, I think the interesting thing, of course, is that Mary says the great thing about the US is you can still have a debate. I mean, I think that's slightly pale. I mean, the great thing about the US is that the politics will swing, as it did, for example, after Vietnam. And uh, you will get a change of, uh, in the White House, you've got a change in Congress, and it will be sweeping. And I think that's what's happening. I also think it's interesting, and it was one of the things which I found um, taking part in this commission, that there are now people in the State Department who have been, as it were, suppressed for a very long time and who were very much marginalised during the period when Mr Rumsfeld and Mr Cheney were totally in charge and, you know, Colin Powell, we don't, we're not going to go back over all of that, but Colin Powell, in a sense, lost out in that particular power struggle. Professional State Department people 
who are much more experienced and expert in that part of the world and have the kind of expertise that you would expect a country like the United States to bring to bear on its policy, who are now significant within the policy-making framework. So I think you've got the two factors in the United States. You've got the political drive, which is against Bush and against the prosecution of the aftermath of the war, and you've got the reinstatement of the positive elements of the State Department who are actually doing some of the official work. The Guardian says today 2,000 died, and they want to invade Iran as well. Yeah, but I mean, that is, that is Mr. Cheney. I don't think that is the, I don't think that is the position. Dim, oh, just very quickly on war crimes. Should anyone be prosecuted? Um, well, of course, uh, people should be prosecuted for perpetrating injustices. Um, I think this is, there, there is a wider point, though, that... Um, the failure to establish the rule of law in each and every way, and this is probably the most dramatic example, is um, a real handicap for the country. And until they manage to get that one cracked, then I would actually leave the war crimes, except where they pertain to foreign troops, I would leave that out of the equation. Three very quick last questions. Uh, Gosh, there's one three. Uh, chap in the yellow T-shirt. To what extent did uh, the Commission gauge the Iraqi population's opinion before writing its proposals? And now that the report has been published, to what extent is the Commission following up and gauging the Iraqi population's opinions about the proposals on their future? Thank you. Uh, the yellow T-shirt, brown scarf. My question is actually for um, Baroness Jay. You um, described the irresponsibility of the United States in refusing to engage in discussion with groups that you felt represented the Iraqi people. Yet when you described the need for long-term um, stability in the region of the Middle East, you said that Britain should pressure the United States to push for the solution. But I'm wondering why um, you want to lend this kind of political clout to a nation that's proven itself diplomatically irresponsible and incapable of handling such an important task. <laughs> I think my answer to that was in my answer to the last question. Uh, uh, the guy in the red jacket is waving. Looks desperate to ask the question. So, final question. <laughs> Hi, um, Shara Ali. A point was made earlier about the kind of insidious motivations that can enter into the continuation of the war. And I do despair sometimes when I hear you all talking, or some of you at least, talking about oil wealth and oil resources, um, given that that's an inherently unsustainable thing for us to be encouraging given climate change, believe it or not, which is another war which we're going to have to be facing. So I wanted to know from the panellists whether or not um, they conceived of any other uh, Iraq resource which um, we could uh, ensure Iraqis' long-term future with. Baroness Jay, could you, perhaps if you combine the first two, we might have time for just a, a couple of last questions. Um, to what extent did you gauge the Iraqi Well, I mean, this was something which we were very conscious that we couldn't do to the extent that we couldn't go to Iraq. 
um, people on the panel on the commission had been there recently, but we did not as a commission go there. We did Why not? Have, well, simply time and security and uh, the pressures of all of the things which were going on. I mean, nine, we had nine separate people. We were trying to do this in a month. Um, it was not logistically, I think it was logistics rather than anything else which defeated us, certainly not intent. But I think the point was that we did try to invite and we did have a significant number of Iraqi contributors who gave evidence, people who were here or who we spoke to on uh, video links, etc., etc. What are we doing to follow it up? I think that's a question which must be addressed to the Foreign Policy Centre who were, as I said right at the beginning, in a way, the content authors of this whole setup. It's quite a small organisation. I'm sure they'd be delighted to be funded by Channel 4 or anybody else to take it forward. As far as the commissioners were concerned, we simply have our usual ways of doing this, either through our parliamentary or our journalistic or our media um, involvement to do it as uh, part of our, that kind of work. We don't have a formal uh, locus, as it were, to take it forward. And the US, a nation diplomatically incapable? Well, as I said, in, in, I intervened at the end of that question. The point was, indeed, the US did prove to have proved themselves to be very... Um, I don't know whether the word is incapable, certainly very intransigent in terms of their uh, opening dialogue with individual countries and with the neighbours, and particularly inside Iraq. But there has been a change of mood. It's been pushed politically within the United States. It has now led to people within the foreign policy establishment, if you want to call it that, of the United States being more open and more available for that kind of dialogue. And clearly, as I said also at the beginning, they are the only ones who can deliver, for example, on the Israeli-Palestinian situation. And one has to hope that those lessons have gone home. Uh, Mary, oil wealth, um, oil resources unsustainable because of climate change, etc. Yeah, I think that's a very good and very important question. Um, it's something I've been very concerned about. Um, there's a seems to be a very close correlation between oil dependence and war. And by and large, countries which depend on oil rents for their economy are usually unstable countries prone to sectarian warfare. Um, and um, so I think there's a case for reducing dependence on oil wealth independently of climate change and energy security. And actually, I think all of these three things are part of the same problem with the same solution. So it's terribly important to put that into the equation when you're talking about climate change. You've got to deal with the problem of oil-dependent countries and how to change and diversify their economy. Uh, on Iraq, I'd just say one thing in answer to your question. I mean, what has impressed me, it, it's impressed me again today with the, some of the questions, is Iraq is this highly educated, very sophisticated mm. society. Mm, exactly. I, the thing that really blew my mind when I was in Baghdad was that I went to talk to people in the House of Wisdom which is the oldest think tank in the world, founded in 900. <laughs> so, so, so I sort of feel that given that enormous intellectual capital that Iraq has, there must be quite a lot of things that could be done. I'd just like to underline that. I'm glad you said that, Mary, because I was going to intervene after you had finished and say exactly that. And the numbers of sort of examples that we were given in the commission of 
hierarchy, entrepreneurial activity of exactly that kind of knowledge-based skill which we're told in the 21st century is the foundation of any successful economy. We're not talking here about a very backward state with just one primary product to sell and to develop on the world market. As Mary says, immensely sophisticated, highly educated <coughs> population. We have run out of time. I'm sorry that we haven't been able to get uh, more questions in, and thank you for all those excellent questions. Thank you for coming, and thank you to our panel. And I just have to say that... and food in the senior common room in, uh, on the fifth floor, I'm told. <laughs>